thank you for joining, Jay. Hi, Larissa. Glad to be here. Thank you. I'm happy to have you. Um, so we will get started shortly. Um, is it okay if we start early or would you just like to start directly on time? That's a, we can start early, whatever you want. Okay, sounds great. Okay, so um, thank you everyone for joining the podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest named Jay Sotenthal. I believe that's how it's spelled. And um, I would like him to introduce himself. Uh, please tell me a little, about, a little bit about yourself, Jay. Hi, Larissa. I am a child welfare consultant and a former child protective services investigator. Basically, when reports of child abuse or neglect were made to the state, what I used to do was, on behalf of the government, respond to that report, uh, investigate, and take actions to keep children safe when they weren't. Now, that sounds like a fairly virtuous idea that children among the most vulnerable uh, of us, the idea that they should be kept safe sounds like a good one. Yeah, now, it does, yeah. Now, whether or not it, the government actually is effective at that in practice is another matter. And so eventually, if you... It, if you work in social services, mm-hmm. you're not there to make seven figures because social services historically is not a particularly well-paying profession. That also applies in particular to child welfare. Yep. And so if you're not there to make a lot of money, then you have to be there to get fulfillment some other way. And typically that's because you actually want to help families, particularly families in crisis. But it got to the point when I, I'd seen that Child Protective Services in the United States was, they were no more efficient. They held you in no less contempt they were no more effective than your local DMV is at renewing your driver's license in a quick and efficient manner, or the IRS is at auditing you quickly, effectively, and the the only difference was that the stakes were higher because you're talking about the integrity of families. You're talking about somebody's children. And unfortunately, Child Protective Services in the US does a pretty good job of investigating a broad range, a, a broad range of people, but not a particularly good job at respecting parental rights. So eventually, it got to the point where I realized I'm not actually able to 
coupled families in the way that the virtue would suggest, the virtue of child protection. And if I wasn't helping families in that effect, and I wasn't making a lot of money, then I had to ask myself the question, what am I doing? And you know what, Larissa? I couldn't answer it. I had no answer. You were just in that spot and you couldn't answer? Well, if I was doing, you know, if I was pouring my heart and soul into doing this for a living and it wasn't bringing me wealth and I wasn't helping the families or I didn't see that even with all the resources at my disposal that I was helping families effectively, then what was my purpose? And so eventually out of that, I said, okay, I can't stay here, but this is my calling. So I decided to create what I thought was needed. And that's where CPS Protect Consulting came from, was quite simply that Child Protective Services is very opaque. The way that terms like abuse and neglect and minimum standard of care are defined is so ambiguous and so broad that it is very easy to substantiate a case and destroy a family with very minor concerns. But what if there were a way that families could prepare for and these investigations strategic without violating the laws and allowing it to do its job where it does best in severe cases of abuse, but to really level the playing field and offer an option that is not an attorney that really is only going to come into play if Child Protective Services takes your case to court, which often doesn't happen. What if there was an alternative? Not only did you have to wait for court, but you also didn't have to put down a retainer that was $3,000, and might end up costing you twenty to fifty thousand dollars in total by the time everything's done yeah wow the, uh, what if we could do it for a lot less and save a lot more headache and I, yeah i i i see what you're saying there i i have just one question that kind of i'm just wondering here so as a consultant for CPS, would you be a contractor to the government or would you be working with the clients and then you'd be their like consultant? Absolutely not. Now, child welfare consultants are typically business to government contractors that help optimize and improve the operations of child welfare agencies. However, what CPS Protect does is we help families and navigate 
Child Protective Services investigations. We actually have no connection to the government. We accept no funding from the government. We've made it a point to keep ourselves separate. Oh, wow. Interesting. And then I have a second follow up. So I, I, I think when there is the child protective service cases, usually those people are either living in suburbia or there's low income, but there is some in the city, like higher worth, you could say families that do have cases of this. But I think, like, do you have a specific demographic that you look toward or anyone who's willing to take on your case? Like, how do you go about that? It's interesting. I, before I actually got into the child, I didn't know just how widespread this was. So it, just to use some numbers for reference, I'll use, I'll use the statistics from 2019 simply because the COVID-19 pandemic skewed numbers a bit and they're starting to go back to what they were. But those are not necessarily the norm, so they're not good measures to give for, to give for statistics. Okay. Or times that are <laughs> not pandemic in nature. Um, so, in the federal fiscal year of 2019, nationwide, there were 2.2 million reports of child abuse and neglect investigated. 2.2 million. There were almost half a million children separated from their families by Child Protective Services. So that's foster care, kinship care, institutionalization. Of those removals, 84% were due to allegations of neglect, not abuse. So the threshold for removal is lower than you would think. I see. So I, I, the, they grouped the statistic of like, uh, you were saying orphans as well with the child. Is that what you're saying? No, no. These are cases where, uh, I'll, I'll give an example of a minor case. So you have a family and Apparently, the uh, Child Protective Services says the home, so the, the, the investigator comes in and assesses the safety of the home, and maybe there are four kids, and this is a two-bedroom apartment, and the four kids are all in one bedroom, and it's not, it, the Child Protective Services determines it's not safe, and says okay, we need to find alternative placement for the kids. So we're going to remove the children. And they take custody of the children away from the parents and place them in foster care. Those are essentially temp uh, 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 temporary parents uh, that have been screened by child welfare. Uh, kinship is uh, maybe, for an example, an extended family member. Uh, so a lot of child welfare agencies do try to place in kinship care if they can. 
and institutionalization, sometimes if a child cannot be placed due to, for example, behavioral issues, uh, they may be uh, placed in a residential treatment center uh, or other form of congregate care. And that would be institutionalization. So these are cases, these are children who were removed from their homes by child welfare because someone reported allegations that they were abusing or neglecting their children to the government. Okay. I, I have a, a question. So I don't really know how the, the child protective things work, but I'm just wondering, like, is there like a history of like the past 20 years of child protective services interfering in like some good statistics, like the families of the child protective uh, services, these families have grown up in you know, uh, better families. So then their careers have thrived and then they've created different businesses. Like, is there a path that they follow these children like as a study or is it just like they, it's just to help the initial children that have, are having these, you know, these conflicts in their households? Like, is there like a long-term study on this? Uh, there is not much in terms of long-term studies in unsubstantiated cases. Most of the studies have focused on either cases where the allegations have been substantiated and are particularly severe, or they are focused on the outcomes of foster children. Uh, children who have been, who have aged out of foster care or been in foster care for an extended period of time uh, have statistically higher rates uh, of uh, psychiatric uh, disorders, uh, they are more likely to be victims of sexual and physical abuse. Uh, they are more likely in the future to have encounters with law enforcement, uh, be incarcerated. Uh, they can also be uh, less likely than average to move up uh, in uh, social uh, in socioeconomic class. So kids who spend extended time in foster care, particularly those who age out, uh, do not, uh, although some do become successful and some do land in good foster homes, uh, spending an extended period of time in foster care uh, does put you at a disadvantage in the long run. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually have a friend who was a foster care child. Her uh, father was in prison. It was not a friend friend, but more of like a classmate. So her, her father was in prison. And then her mother was like, she had like done some sort of substance abuse. And so the child was put into the foster care. And then the, the foster care that they rehomed them, it was like in um, almost like they rehomed her in a very similar neighborhood where she was currently living. And um, I, don't, I don't know how exactly it was working. But I, I I just, uh, when I had interactions with her, I feel that uh, her, the way her life was, she felt like she didn't belong there, even if it was rehoming in her family, or if she was, you know, visiting her friends, she felt like it was like a, like she was walking along a border of like, these people either didn't like her or couldn't like take care of her. And then her own family was very busy, you know, so there, it's almost like she was walking this line of like, if the, the family, you know, if she does something wrong, the family will put her back into the foster and then it will go from her parents, like from her relatives or something of that sort. So I feel, I felt like 
I, I, it can be very challenging to fall into these situations, but I, I'm just like, just wondering, like, is there like any options? Like, let's say one or two parents do have either a substance problem or they're in jail or, you know, incarcerated, whatever it may be. So is there like solutions where they could take like the whole family, work it together? Like, cons- like for sort of like um, um, talking with a, you know, psychologist or like talking with somebody together with the family and working through it together or it's it's not like has that never really worked it's interesting i like the way that you're thinking and i'll go into that a bit so more recently child welfare has been uh in some cases providing some services directly uh in other cases uh contracting it out to nonprofits, which uh, which is becoming more common. Uh, and they call these services prevention services. Uh, this is dictated under uh, the federal Family First Prevention Services Act, which was passed in 2017. Now, it is a very good idea because there is always even if a child goes to a good foster home or is in good kinship care and they have frequent visitation with the mother and, you know, and the father, and there is a, you know, and they minimize the time that it would take. The prevention services is a good idea done very wrong, unfortunately. And it's because the prevention services are, number one, always provided in-home. And number two, it's either Child Protective Services or a Child Protective Services contractor. And what happens is these contractors or Child Protective Services, even if somebody is no longer investigation, this is still child welfare involvement. And this can last anywhere from six months to two years or more, usually these prevention services. And so in effect, you have child welfare in the home. And these workers also happen to be mandated reporters. And especially when the prevention services providers are contract are, are contractors to child protective services, if they see something or they're involved with a family and they don't make a report and it turns out that something happens, the prevention services agency will lose that contract. And therefore, prevention services providers are some of the biggest sources of subsequent reports to Child Protective Services. And when you're in the home pointing out every little thing, here's here's the way a parent sees it. I can't feel safe to parent in my own home. I have to be perfect. I can't make any mistakes. My mother used to tell me, you know, I'm doing my best. Unfortunately, you weren't born with an instruction manual. So it's so sometimes I make a mistake 
granted, I was very fortunate. My parents were great to me. I have grown up reasonably healthy and in a good place, and I'm happy. But the fact of the matter is, what she was getting at was important, which is parents aren't perfect. As long as you're not hurting your child in a significant way, parents are allowed to, you know, need to be allowed to make mistakes because parents are just as human as everybody else. Now, granted, if you're doing something that's obviously not within reason and is a very serious safety concern, that's a different story than, well, I'm sorry I got a little upset. I'm sorry I got a little heated on a rare occasion. So the, preve the prevention services, because of the relationship with Child Protective Services or the fact that it is Child Protective Services, and now whether it's contracted out or not, creates an environment where you could be looking at perpetual Child Protective Services involvement. And I tend to describe CPS investigations as among the most frightening experiences any parent can endure. And the reason for that is even if it's not likely that your child is going to be removed or your case is going to be taken to court, it could still be substantiated. It, and the potential consequences, the worst consequences, the, the termination of parental rights, which many families tend to refer to as the death penalty in child welfare. Is it for their lifetime or until they're 18 and then once the child grows up, like, is it like a permanent block? It, 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 once someone is an adult, mm -hmm. once they're legally an adult at age 18, or if they're still in foster care until age 21, there's some ambiguity there. Uh, yes, it is for that time. And legally, you are no longer the parent. Your rights have been stripped. Uh, if a termination of parental rights order is issued and all appeals fail. Uh, but yes, that's why they call it the death penalty in child welfare is that's it. If someone's an adult and they want to reach out, uh, reach out to you once they are an adult and child welfare no longer has any authority, then the child can certainly do that. But as long as they are a minor child, you have no rights, no contact, nothing. Wow, that's. I I feel like the ch sometimes I think there probably might be ch children that may, you know, not understand what that means and maybe maybe upset about that. Like I I can't imagine like even, you know, my parents aren't alcoholics. They're not, you know violent you know people or anything but i just if i were to be like separated even for like a year i i don't know what would happen to me like inside my brain my own mind so i think like like from you know coming up in a decent household at least you know from what i could tell um i i just do not know how like future children who are either like separated for you know a substantial period of time from their parents you know their birthing people it's 
I, or even like rehouse multiple times. Like I, I can't imagine how that would feel, you know, as a child. Yeah. It, 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 even in cases where there is legitimate abuse, when you conduct a removal, there is always some degree of Stockholm syndrome simply because sometimes that's all the child knows. But those cases are the cases where there is serious abuse are not nearly as common as the, the statistics on CPS investigations would have one, would lead one to assume. The, where, it, where it really becomes a problem with the termination of parental rights comes from a law that is It comes from a law that is the case in point. Good intentions do not always lead to good outcomes. Uh, the Adoption and Safe Families Act was passed during the Clinton administration. And one of the things that it tried to do was reduce the amount of time that children lingered in foster care, essentially in limbo. And when parental rights are terminated, reduce the amount of time that they wait to be adopted. And so one of the, the, one of the major things that the Adoption, and Safe, the Adoption and Safe Families Act did was it limited the amount of time that a child could linger in foster care before the state had to pursue a termination of parental rights. And that was 12 of the past 15 months in foster care. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, uh, what I refer to as the remedial courts, the family and juvenile courts, depending on this, uh, where child welfare cases are actually adjudicated, depends on the state. So uh, a lot of times it's the family court, sometimes it's juvenile court, but Ultimately, the, these courts have a severe backlog. And that means that if you met the criteria for reunification, well, the next court hearing may not be for months. And so that point at which termination of parental rights is pursued can come at you pretty quick. The most aggressive, the state that's most aggressive in termination of parental rights is actually West Virginia. And sometimes they have a tendency at the six month mark wow. to start those proceedings. Uh, Maricopa County in Arizona is another one that is particularly quick to do that. The Adoption and Safe Families Act also provides funding for families who are looking to adopt to make it easier and quicker for them to do so, to get through all the paperwork. Uh, a lot of families whose rights have been terminated look at the money that's given to the state and the money, you know, to help facilitate it. And the money that's given to potential adoptive families to actually make this go faster, they look at it as, well, what if that money could have helped me and it was more of a financial issue? Why would you give it to them to take my child away from me instead of giving it to me to help me raise my child. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. So this is, it, this is a case in point of good intentions gone awry. And this does when a child when a child is removed, sometimes for very minor allegations of neglect, this can unfortunately lead to uh, actions that are disproportionate to what actually occurred. And the the reality is, you look at every so often you will see in the news where child protective a case where child protective services was involved with a family, they didn't do anything, and the worst happened to a child. The child died. Really? News and everybody's outraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, unfortunately, what ends up happening is because Child Protective Services, usually at the state level, occasionally at the local level, uh, is housed in the executive branch. Uh, so of the state or city in some cases, uh, what ends up happening is it is very political. And so when this outrage happens, you have the appointed officials in charge of child welfare, and then you have the governor and his cabinet, and nobody wants to lose their appointment or their elected office. So they do whatever is in their control. They increase the authority that CPS has to act quicker and the people that actually, uh, you know, were follow, were, may have been following the rules get penalized. At minimum, they lose their jobs. At worst, they get prosecuted and end up in prison. And so Child Protective Services, and particularly those behind it, do have control over, which is Child Protective Services. But it just so happens that CPS's authority is in direct opposition to parental rights. So you get a more aggressive Child Protective, uh, Child Protective Services Agency. And this has been the trend that has been, you know, that has been going down, I would say, for the past 40 years. The, this is the direction that we've been heading in is the scope of what constitutes abuse and neglect has grown uh, and the threshold for taking substantial action has been reduced in a big way and as a result you have much more involvement you know, even in cases that don't actually uh, result in substantiated allegations, it, those in themselves are still traumatic. So here you have a decimation of parental rights. Yes, I, 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 I see what you're saying there. Like, so it's almost like the parents are like in a way to the same level incarcerated from their children for like a permanent period by, you know, certain uh, legislatures and certain, you know, people. I'm just wondering, so this is kind of what I was thinking along the way of, you know, the conversation here. So 
there's different people they parent different ways different laws in different state allow certain things like for example some states allow spanking some don't some allow certain things some do not so i from what i just have my assumptions i don't i don't have exact quotes or studies to quote but i i think like some parents who are using like let's say like physical ways of uh, keeping their kids you know mannered some people could see that as excessive and some people could see that as perfect parenting so in my perspective i think like when people do like you know spanking or certain things like that like a physical form of keeping them in place the child is aware that physical violence or physical acts or actions are to keep them in line and so they get kind of used to that physical you know that being more physical of a person you know so if the parent is spanking the kid may grow up you know being more of a more like a not violent but more of like an action physically doing something to another person to show something you know as a as like as an effect because it's they were taught physically so i don't know like do you know why like some states have certain laws like you're allowing to do this and some states that it's not allowed is it because they're republicans and democrats or they just don't have it right across the board or there's like what exactly like why is it it's such a big diverse law of what parental like abuse is like why is that that term different in every state i am so glad you brought this up there's a lot to unpack here so let, let's start with the terms abuse and neglect. So child protective services is primarily legislated at the state level. You have some baseline federal laws, but most of this is handled at the state level. So abuse and neglect are written, how, how they're defined in law are essentially written by the state uh, by the state governments, and so everybody writes it a little differently, but they're all relatively similar. So the real problem becomes that uh, terms like abuse and neglect are not well defined at all. So if you're meeting the minimum standard of care, but you're very close to the line. Let me give you an example. So let's say I feed my son three meals a day, but they're all happy meals from McDonald's. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. It's, is it healthy? No. But am I providing my son nourishment with three, full meal, three complete meals a day? Yes, I am. So technically, I'm meeting the minimum standard of care. But if there are concerns medically, then it might be medical neglect. In my experience, if there is something that is within a reasonable range of the line of where the minimum standard of care is, that would be the bare minimum that you have to do to take care of a child. Uh, child Protective Services may act uh, to, to show that they did something just in case, because the consequences for overreacting are basically zero 
while the consequences for failing to act in a time, you know, in a case that they should have, are extremely severe. So there's a skewed incentive structure based on liability. That means it's always going to be safer to overreact than it is to not react. Uh, and when I say react, I mean do something, whether it's remove the child or put mandated services in place or otherwise, so that you can say that you did something. Now, spanking is, and corporal punishment in general, is something else entirely. Now, most states tend to say, as long as you're not leaving marks or bruises, then it's up to you. The research shows at this point, the, the body of research that we have shows that, yeah, as you said, uh, corporal, uh, use of corporal punishment is associated with, uh, you know, with more aggressive behaviors, uh, psychiatric uh, disorders, uh, potential incarceration in the future, uh, domestic violence. Uh, now, before those who actually believe in corporal punishment uh, go and say, well, my child turned out okay, or I turned out okay despite, here's what I'll say. There may be a level of corporal punishment that does have the desired effect where it does not cause that increased aggression uh, and it does not cause any of these other less than ideal associations to put it lightly. Um, but being able to actually define it in the research it, it would be extraordinarily difficult at best because you would have to control for the rate at which, at which the child is struck. You would have to control for the, uh, the adult's emotion, emotional state. You would have to control for how strong each physical strike was. And that's really, that's difficult enough to do in a controlled environment, in a lab. It is even more difficult, I would say almost impossible, to thread the needle by doing that in the process of, in the process of being a parent in daily life, simply because Parents are not perfect, and you're not me you're not devoid of emotion when administering corporal punishment. And unfor unfortunately, life you know you you don't have a bunch of measuring tools to make sure that all of these variables are controlled for. So I don't think that it is typically a good idea. It may be in a very limited case, 
but it is unlikely that we will ne- we will ever know whether or not it is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. So I I think that I think there are tiny tests like let's say there's like those you know monkey tests where you show the monkey to do this, the monkey does that same thing. So for example, like if the kid was brought up with spanking, the kid may become a parent who does spanking. I actually have a one interesting thing to point in here because we're talking about like, you know, parents and how they are. So I know in my childhood, my parents had, you know, we they did spanking sometimes or, you know, on your knees for however long. So we had various forms of punishment, but I'm just wondering like um, me, myself as a person, like my own body, um, my body gets injuries quick. It's not quick uh, from a spanking per se, but like, let's say I'm going biking and my knee hits a tree. I will have a bruise immediately on my knee. So if something even touches me, it will show up as like an injury or a bruise. And I know I was a very rough child and I had like, you know, a lot of mostly, uh, you know, Uh, male friends you know so they were very rough and I was very rough and we were very like aggressive and so I tend to have bruises throughout my body and I think growing up I think some let's say for example if you're a faculty member or a teacher or something you may assume oh this student may be abused or something or this student may be this but I think if you just looked at me and saw how aggressive I was like in my playing and everything I did like my skin bruises very easily and I was just a very aggressive kid. So I, I know some people, whether like they're teachers or whatever they are, anyone could technically call abusive services or the protective people, protective services. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is that like because I'm like my mother is part Jewish and because I grew up from her side, she has like a, this type of blood type or something something in her body that the bruises don't show up immediately immediately but they're you bruise quicker than any other children around you or any other types of people around like if you're a person from ukraine or a jewish person the jewish person like bruise a little bit more like i have this thing about me so i i just like i wonder like you know out of the you were saying two million complaints filed or whatever it is so i just don't know how many of them were like for actual cause like for example some you know children are aggressive or very active and some aren't as active or some have different types of like body types you know what I mean like bruising body types so I I just don't know like out of the two million like how many were like valid complaints you know that that's really hard to say because reports are assumed to be not malicious in nature what child welfare tends to refer to as reports made in good faith. And the only way that a report can be labeled as made in bad faith, a malicious report, is if the police investigate and someone is convicted of making an intentionally false report. Uh, And that in particular, is very rare. The threshold for uh, for unsealing the name of a reporter of child abuse and neglect is extraordinarily high. Uh, in my personal experience, I will say that uh, bad faith reports are a lot more common than they are reported as. Uh, 
that's not to say that the majority of reports uh, it, they're likely not, but the it, it, what what you're saying about innocuous marks and bruises that refers to mandated reporter laws. Now, in some states, everyone is a mandated reporter, but it's difficult to enforce a mandated reporting law of that scope. Uh, most states have more limited mandated reporter laws that are limited to those licensed professionals that are most likely to have a substantial amount of contact with children. So you're talking about uh, daycare employees, you're talking about school and other educational staff, uh, you're talking medical professionals like pediatricians, pediatric nurses, um, attorneys, uh, social services workers, uh, they tend to be uh, mandated reporters in every state in the country. And yes, because it, if they see a bruise that may be innocuous, but in theory, it could be abusive, they legal, legally, they have to report it. And even if it's not, even if it turns out it's not abusive, that is considered a report made in good faith. So there is no recourse for that. Uh, Are there like records for this? Like, is that possible for me to see that? In terms of like each individual person, like records of like, oh, those this person. Are, those are confidential records. The only oh, way wow. you will ever see those is if you are an executive at a state child welfare agency. You will know. Uh, researchers. So citizens, aren't, who, uh, citizens aren't allowed to access their own records in regards to reports. Is that correct? Uh, citizens are allowed to. They can write to the state if they have the case number and the name and request a copy of the records. However, uh, those records will be redacted in some areas. You will not be able to see the source of the report, for example, that will be redacted. But you will get you can get the case notes. But that would be limited to you if you were the child or uh, the subject. Uh, of that report, uh, as long as those are still on file, you could get those, uh, you could get the case documentation. Okay, got it. I, I wasn't aware. I There's not like a full class on learning about this, you know, so. Well, that is, well, that's part of the problem is when Child Protective Services shows up, not only is it particularly frightening, most parents don't know, should I give consent for them to view my child's medical records? Should I let them in? Should I not? Should I take that drug test? Should I not? Uh, how should, you know, what, how does Child Protective Services uh, define a good home or a good parent? There is no class on this. There isn't a lot of information on this. And as, you know, as a result, resources, especially more affordable resources, are extraordinarily difficult to come by. And that was the whole idea behind CPS Protected Consulting Services, is 
we can help families prepare for and navigate CPS investigations. But at the same time, we also recognize that there are some people that may have more difficulty affording even our services. And for us, it may be, you know, a few, you know, anywhere from three to six hundred dollars one time, as opposed to the thousands that attorneys might charge. But we also last month launched CPS Knowledge, which is a subscription blog. Essentially, as it continues to grow, we publish a, an article on a CPS law, a CPS term, policy, is on CPS in the news every Thursday. And it's essentially a do-it-yourself version of our core services where we actually help you prepare for and navigate a CPS investigation. And we go over things like uh, prevention services versus community-based organizations, uh, the differences there and how that can affect you and what you should do, uh, the Family First Prevention Services Act, uh, the life cycle of a CPS report uh, that's actually coming out this week, uh, the educational neglect allegation and the states that applies it and what to actually do to reduce the chances that you have an allegation alleged against you for educational neglect uh, and a whole lot more. And that's a lot less expensive. Uh, so we do, uh, unfortunately, to do something like this full time, it's not cheap and the government isn't interested in providing funding or helping out with this. So we have to go, uh, we have to go with this on our own. Uh, but we believe that the information that people need should be out there. It should be accessible and it should be affordable. I, I'm wondering why doesn't, why isn't there funding to this? Like there is funding to Medicare for healthcare, for the, you know, the insurance companies, you know, there's because funding to, there's funding to everything. Why isn't there funding to the child protective services? There's plenty of funding to child protective services, but helping families prepare for and navigate the investigations is in opposition to Child Protective Services. There has been for a long time an argument, uh, a debate over whether, uh, uh, whether Child Protective Services should be considered law enforcement or social services. Uh, Child Protective Services likes to classify itself as social services because then they don't have to uh, read somebody, for example, their Miranda rights, they're not entitled to an attorney, there are less protections because it's not a because they're not law enforcement. Uh, a lot of families, particularly who have been wronged by CPS, want CPS classified as law enforcement because they believe those protections are needed. But those protections make it more difficult for CPS to do what it does. So they're not interested in making it easier for families to and parents in particular to put Teflon on their parental rights and to exercise them, they want 
to they want to be able to do their job with minimal resistance. I see. I I I have this like scenario I'm picturing in my mind right now. So, uh, you know, there's immigrants in the Ukraine war and everything that might be coming over. Some are, some are not. So, I'm just wondering. Out of let's say, let's just say a hundred people, there's probably gonna be maybe more or less. I'm not sure, but let's say a hundred people from let's say a foreign country come here as immigrants. And let's just say, like you were saying, out of the two million, half of them were in child protective. So out of this hundred people, half of their children's w- children will be removed from them. So basically, these people would be brought to this country, and then half the people's children, uh, based on the pros- pro- probability, it may be on different groups and you know different things. But I'm just assuming this immigrants in general. So half of their children will be removed from them and then placed into cares or into different you know places for you know whatever reason and then uh so what happens to the other half like of the you know out of the two million study out of the other half are they like out of the two million complaints the the other half that aren't like no actions taken toward that what happens to those people uh well typically once uh, once their case with cps is closed the case information is sealed and uh, assuming it's unsubstantiated the uh, they didn't find enough evidence to say that the allegations were true uh, then that report will be retained for 10 years and then destroyed uh, if it's substantiated it can be for longer um, a lot of states uh, keep those rec- uh, will have those records searchable on background checks uh, for up to 10 years after the youngest child named in the report turns uh, 18. Some, depending on the allegation, will use the same 10-year rule if it's a more minor allegation, but those records, even after they're no longer searchable in, uh, in a child abuse background check, uh, are retained for much longer. I see that. That's very interesting. So huh, I, I feel like I'm learning so much about this that I I, I, th- I don't think I knew like exactly what happens throughout the process or, you know, you know, how does it like the flow? How does it work? This is this is great. I, I'm just having a question. So what exactly was it that got you started in your career, like into the, you know, consulting for child protective services or just getting into this area? Like, what was it that like got you? into this like what what exactly like was there a person that was like hey this is a great field or you know something like that i touched on it in the beginning uh i had worked with but i'm gonna i'm gonna expand on it here yeah uh i had worked with uh you know uh, as a milieu therapist after getting out of college and then after that uh i uh, after working as a milieu therapist with kids uh, in residential treatment, I went to help the homeless uh, live in the community via something called supportive housing. I did the case management for that, but I missed working with children and I decided to try 
working as a CPS investigator. So I applied, I took my civil service exam and in it, I thought I had found my calling. I, in, I enjoyed what I did. I didn't, what I will say is I didn't enjoy working for the government. I thought that a lot of, you know, there was a lot of favoritism. Promotion was more about how well liked you were and less about the job that you did. Uh, I saw nobody wanted to take responsibility uh, for, uh, you know, for what they were supposed to do. Everybody was about passing the buck. And it really annoyed me because I tended to go, uh, go into this as I want to do the right thing. And I always went into whatever the allegation, I always went into the home with the mindset of how can I get this family to want to work with me for a reason other than if you don't work with me, I'll take you to court. Because if you really want to help a family and you want there to be lasting change, you have to, you can't, they have to want to change because Otherwise, once the threat of you, and by you, I mean CPS, is gone, then they're going to go right back to what they were doing before. And that doesn't do anything. So I always tried to find what it was that would make a family want to work with me. And there's one family that I remember fondly. So the allegation was that, so mom had mental illness. She had three kids. One was 17, one was uh, around 12, uh, and the other was about seven years old. And this report lands on my desk, and it says, Mom has been interfering with psychotherapy. This was during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and so it was being done by Zoom. She's not letting the child interact with her father. And, you know, uh, the mom may not be taking her meds. So I go out to investigate. And this mother does not want to let me in. She does not want to let me in. Yelling at me, screaming at me at the door. Ten minutes later, I convince her to let me in so we can talk. And I start going through my questions with her, addressing the allegations and everything else. Turns out the guy was... The, the father. There were domestic violence issues and there was an order of protection in place which apparently the therapist didn't know this looked like a case of a stressed out mother and a bad match for a therapist for the middle child so she's still not letting me talk to the kids and i see her mind is racing and she's trying to explain everything that you know that she does for herself and she not just for herself but she does for the kids 
that she, you know, trying to do the right thing, keep the household running. And then I ask a question that makes that gives her pause. She's confused. I ask her, what do you like to do for fun? She just looks at me. So I ask again, what are your hobbies? She doesn't have an answer for me. Yeah. And this was a single mother on welfare benefits. And she was so focused on taking care of her children. She'd done zero self-care. And we started, we finally started to have a real genuine conversation. She finally started opening up about things that she used to like to do. And she started to realize my life is all about my kids. I have nothing left for me and I have no energy. I'm, I'm running on empty, so to speak. And I said, I said to her, okay, so this is what it looks like. It looks like a case of a bad match for a therapist. I have to do my job. I have to go through everything. The quicker I do it, the quicker I can close this case. But you got to work with me. I will. There's a clinic in your neighborhood I've referred to before. I'll refer your daughter to a therapist there. Hopefully, it'll be a better match. And that'll be the end of this whole issue. It'll be, they're accepting appointments at their clinic. So you don't have to do it in the home. That may be easier as well. Um, she let me interview the kids. And at the end, she said, this was the end of the initial visit. She said, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this. I hate that CPS was called and that they're involved, but I'm glad they sent you. Thank you. And she also asked me, could you make a referral, you know, a therapy referral for me too? Oh, and it, sometimes it really is that simple. But from what I saw, this was something where it could have gone either way. Uh, I could have substantiated this case uh, due to the interference with therapy. As crazy as it sounds, I could have done that. Um, but I took the risk. I decided this was, this was not a, this was a case where I didn't see that the evidence warranted, you know, that I'd met the burden of proof for substantiating it. And to my knowledge, that family hasn't returned to the eyes of CPS. I wouldn't know, um, given that I don't have access anymore. But I like to think that that family made the right changes. But unfortunately, a lot of times this doesn't happen. Now, with all the work that I went, with all the lens that I went to, sometimes getting furniture 
for a family that needed it because of the bureaucracy was so difficult. It would take months to actually get it. And what I realized was in most cases, we weren't actually helping families because even in unsubstantiated cases, it's still very traumatic to go through a CPS investigation. And I just didn't see that we were doing the right thing. So I came to a crossroads, which is, I, I had three options. Child welfare was my calling. I loved what I did. So I could either make the best of a bad situation. I could leave my calling entirely, or I could create what I thought was needed. And I saw an opening for what if we could level the playing field for parents? What if CPS wasn't this mysterious ghost that came into your home and blindsided you without, and you had no help or no understanding of how to actually get through it, of what to do and what not to do. And I developed the idea. I wrote my business plan. I showed it to a few trusted confidants. I had, fortunately, I'd invested well. So I had the funding to bootstrap this, at least for a while. And in May of 2022, I finally launched CPS Protect Consulting Services. But with this, I can, the goal is to really help families where there once was none and actually be the change that I couldn't be working for the government investigating these cases. And here, I can, do, I can wake up every morning and do that and be proud of what I'm doing. And that's, uh, that's such an important thing to know, is there are a lot of people that wake up every morning, they go to work, and they're not proud of what they do. They don't enjoy what they do. Their job has lost meaning. That's a problem that I don't have. And this is what CPS Protect is. CPS Protect is me identifying a problem and taking it upon myself to solve it. I couldn't accept what, you know, I, I, I couldn't accept working in Child Protective Services as good enough. And but I took I'm a, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I took a real risk here. I, I for, by leaving CPS, I forfeited a salary, essentially a, a, a reliable income. I forfeited my health insurance coverage, my pension, all gone for just to pursue the idea that I could take my calling and do the right thing. 
I, I think there may have been like cases where CPS has, you know, helped through with some families, but I, I don't know, like, um, I, I think the fulfillment may have been like, uh, like the individual's fulfillment. I know in the past I used to be an, a dental assistant and I was fulfilled as a dental assistant for quite a few years, you know, with people getting beautiful smiles and, you know, teeth cleaned and all these things. So I was fulfilled to a point. But there were some aspects about like dental assisting, which were a little bit like too much for me. So like, you know, seeing blades and tooth extractions and blood and, you know, various procedures. So I think I was fulfilled to an extent, but then after like a five-year period, it kind of, it like kind of the fulfillment almost like vanished or the, the, like the, the feeling that I have like, help the community or help the environment around me was it was almost like the feeling had not vanished it wasn't a passion gone it was more like there was almost no fulfillment and it was just the same action same procedures same assisting the dentists you know you know so it's I I don't know like why it hit me after about five years I'm not sure how it was for your CPS but I don't know exactly why it happened that my like fulfillment from this was decreased or I don't know exactly what made me reevaluate it but I I know that like my non-fulfillment like happened after five years of working as a dental assistant and then going to pursue dentistry so I think after that five-year mark I I kind of had this feeling that if I were to do this for five more years as a dentist you know instead I'll be the dentist uh, you know to go to school then be a dentist so I just like there's something in me that had felt that I needed to like go out and travel, go out and meet people, go and talk to other people instead of just focus on people's teeth, people's mouth, people oral care. So like, I don't know what exactly, like exactly made me change, like not feel the fulfillment in my role, but I, 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 I don't know like how it is it like how it happened to you like like you know you said you felt unfulfilled was it right when you entered or after like five year period of dedicated work or you know I don't like I'm not sure exactly how it happened for you well it for me it it takes some time to learn how in the, in the same way that it can take some time to learn how all of the little pieces inside your phone, all those little pieces of hardware inside your phone work together to create the experience that you see on your screen. It takes time to learn exactly how Child Protective Services works. Uh, so to understand how Child Protective Services is funded, to understand all the terms, the laws, to get a feel for the culture and how the policies in place are implemented, it takes time to understand that. One of the things that I have as a consultant is through that experience is I've done these investigations over and over and over again to the point that I can look at an investigation 
and tell whether it's likely to be substantiated or not. I can, uh, you know, I can look at the facts and it's relatively easy with a relatively high level of efficacy. Granted, it, it, uh, you know, I'm not always correct like everybody else. I am human. But after that level of rep repetition and education and training, Now I'm able to, once you, I, fi I figured this out. I, I came to this conclusion at the point where I had learned enough to understand it. And at the same time, coupled it with the feeling of purpose as to why am I here? Because when I started, I didn't know nearly as much as when I left. And when I started, I had a lot less experience. And so I could more easily align it with my purpose because the ideals that were being put forth were consistent with what most people want, which is for children to be safe. And when they're not, do something to make sure they are safe. But, so once I learned enough about how it actually worked from the inside and coupled it with my, you know, with the purpose, the mission that I had to do the, to do the right thing and help families. When I put that to, when I put that together, that nexus is the exact point at which I hit that crossroads where I asked myself if I'm not, you know, if I'm not helping families and I'm not making seven figures, what am I doing here? Which led me to the three options. Stay at CPS, leave uh, and make the best of it, leave my calling or create what was uh, create what I thought was needed out of thin air. There is nothing like CPS, like CPS protect in existence right now. We're the first of our kind. So there is no precedent for this. That uh, I will admit that is both part of the excitement and the most frightening aspect of social entrepreneurship is I'm not improving what somebody else has already done. I'm pulling something out of thin air, a new idea, and trying to make it work. I see. Do, do you have like a partnership or is it uh, like... Like, is there like a like organization that you're partnering with to do this? Uh, no, we are a standalone consulting firm. Oh wow, that that's so cool. We serve the entire country, and as I said, we help families prepare for and navigate child protective services investigations. Basically, with our core services. You know, depending on whether you're under investigation, uh, under an active investigation or not, uh, you know, we do have 
different services. And we essentially go in with the mindset of, okay, we're going to do, uh, we're going to do the, the same as, uh, you know, a similar assessment to what CPS is going to do. We're going to look for all of your, uh, you know, uh, we're going to look for everything that CPS is going to look for. And we're going to make sure that, for example, if you're under investigation, that you have a personalized plan to make sure that you can get the best possible outcome uh, of the investigation. If you're not under investigation and you're doing this preemptively, we will go over a wide range of scenarios, do the, do the same thing, uh, assessing the home, assessing, uh, you know, the family. We typically do this by video conference. And then three days later, we provide a personalized plan, which includes everything from prior history to, you know, a summary of the walkthrough of the home, safety concerns, uh, your potential risk of an investigation or future investigation. Uh, How, you know, specific instructions on how to navigate certain situations when CPS knocks on your door, uh, you know, uh, uh, what your, for example, if you, for any recourse, what you would, uh, what you would actually need to do and how you not just meet, but exceed the minimum standard of care in your home to make sure that CPS will not, you know, will not substantiate your case. We want to make sure that you're enough, enough above the minimum standard of care, that CPS is not going to substantiate a case against you. And if the investigation is already too far along, how you can get the best possible outcome in the circumstances. Uh, again, I, you know, I also mentioned our blog, CPS Knowledge, which is more of a do-it-yourself, but it's, you know, it, it is a more affordable version of what we do. You know, I recognize, you know, right now we're in a period of very high inflation, and there are a lot of people who can't necessarily afford to put out several hundred dollars for something like this. And so that's why we do, that's why we do have the blog as well. Uh, and I'm really, uh, I'm really proud of what we're doing with CPS knowledge as well. Um, but the fact that we can serve the entire country and we are able to do this a lot more affordably in an area where if you weren't in family court and didn't have tens of thousands of dollars uh, or juvenile court, your potential avenues for help were basically none. You were pretty much on your own. And this is... This is why it's so important to, when you have the chance 
to do the right thing, to take it. Uh, granted, starting starting a business of any kind is always a risky proposition. But if you take if you take a high risk, there's the potential for high rewards. If you take no risk, you have a zero percent chance of getting those rewards. And those rewards may be monetary. They may be emotional. They may be social. They may be more. They, they may be multiples of those. But the important thing is when you have the opportunity, you take it. At least in the United States, if you start a business and it fails, no one's going to stop you from starting a second one. Yeah, you that, can that's try great. again. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I know in some countries you you really can't open a business, you know. Yeah, it's in in some countries that's true. In most countries, it's really that the environment is not set up to be particularly friendly to entrepreneurs and those who want to start their own businesses. It's not as easy as it is in the United States. Not saying it's easy in the U.S., but it can be a lot more difficult in other countries. Yeah, for sure. I I uh, I like how you're saying that you have a blog. I'm just wondering if you do advertising or you know some sort of like online thing with the blog, or like do you have any more future goals for your your consulting firm? So like, are you going to start a podcast? Like, I would be so like enthusiastic to listen to it. Like, if you maybe start a podcast or. Like if the blog like adds, I don't know, like features, you know, or something that like the community, like me personally, like I could go there and like, oh, I'm coming back to go listen to the podcast or I'm coming back to, you know, see some something that you have announced. You know, do you have uh, like some some goals like this? Yes, the uh, the the blog is great. That was launched. Uh, our first post was December 15th. Um we a, a podcast is in our long-term plan uh we do post actually quite frequently to social media we're on facebook instagram uh twitter and linkedin we frequently post tidbits of cps advice um you know and information uh and that's completely free um we also uh, we do have in the works. Uh, it, it's currently in the R and D phase, uh, but we are looking to introduce a service that will help families prepare for uh, child safety conferences and family team meetings. It will be an add-on to our other services. Uh, some people may not want it; others may. Uh, but child safety conferences, in particular, are uh, so, uh, they go by different names uh, depending on the state but these are meetings that are typically held either before, you know if child protective services is considering removing a child or if it was an emergency as soon as possible after a child has been removed uh, that are held with the family to discuss the 
best course of action. These are typically held in the office due to COVID. They may be held remotely via Zoom or some other video conferencing platform. And so we are, uh, we are currently uh, in the R&D phase in developing a dedicated uh, service to preparing families uh, for these specific types of meetings. Because how you do that, you know, in, in some of them, Child Protective Services may already have may already have decided, you know what, we are going to court. But in many others, it's up in the air. And how you actually present yourself in that meeting, what you say, what you do, who you have there in terms of supports can sometimes make a difference in whether or not your case goes to court. And that can reduce involvement, substantial the, the duration of involvement substantially. Uh, and so I'm excited. Uh, I expect that will probably be launched maybe the third quarter of 2023 at the earliest, uh, because we did launch in August something called the Roll Risk Consultation. So we have been slowly rolling out. Uh, more services. Uh, but we continue to keep our services fresh. And if something looks like it's not particularly popular, uh, you know, that the market really isn't interested in it, we may pull it. But at this point, we are look, we are looking at continuing to expand the scope of the services we offer. Eventually, uh, it will look very different than it does today. Uh, we will have dedicated child welfare intake specialists that will be the front lines discussing with families their needs and perform, uh, per, uh, taking in the information and intakes. And we will have child welfare consultants who have at least two years of experience doing CPS investigations uh, who will be able to help uh, many more families than I currently have the capacity to do myself today. I see. Um, that is a great goal. If you have a podcast, I will subscribe to it. So just letting you know, I love podcasts. I love listening to audience. I, I think uh, there are some people who do like the TikTok content, but it's very short. But I love the, the longer episodes, like the podcast. So if you do have one, just let me know and I will subscribe to it. Um, I, I wanted to say something here. Uh, have you, um, there's this platform called Alignable. And on Alignable, there is ambassadors that are on Alignable. And they run meetings, like um, monthly meetings and discussion boards for the community. So you would make like, if there's no alliance in your area, so in Seattle, there was not an alliance. I had become an ambassador and ran my own meetings for Alignable. This was some way uh, for me to, you know, combine the community and either make networking events for them or discuss a topic that I had of interest and people who were interested would subscribe to that that event. So is that something you've heard about? We are actually on Alignable. One of the difficulties that we have there is we are not a local business. 
we serve the entire country. And Alignable tends to cater more to businesses that serve a specific locality. So for example, New York City or Los Angeles or Miami or uh, Dallas in Texas, uh, rather than for uh, rather than businesses that uh, serve uh, the entire serve an entire country or region or uh, may have a product that they ship globally, for example. I see. I, I know there is a, a girl on Alignable, the AZ Metals, so Arizona Metals. She's an ambassador of her group. But I had, like, I know some of these alliances you could request to join the group, even if you're not local. In my Green Lake Seattle alliance, I actually allowed some ambassadors from other areas to join or some people who were in Portland to join the alliance. I understand that it's supposed to be a local community where you should meet for coffee in person with your group but at, at that time it was like covid and people were meeting just on the zoom so i i accepted people from other you know areas to join my my alliances and my zoom meetings because i was very consistent in posting and consistent in making these events but um i i i maybe i don't know like the actual use of alliance of the alliances that are alignable the alliances like you were saying should have been local events with the local community and not really for like other states or nationally. Yeah, but it's, it, it, it's certainly a good idea. And I would never want to uh, put down someone for offer, offering up an idea. Uh, potentially a good one. And we are still investigating Alignable, and if it turns out that Alignable is is a good fit for us, we will expand our involvement and engagement on the platform. But for now, I've certainly got my hands full uh, running uh, uh, consulting services. Uh, it is not something that I can just leave alone and have everything run uh, as it should and keep all my relations up to date. Uh, running a business is never easy, but I'm very fortunate I have been able to get this to is today do what I love to do, which is help families. Okay. There's nothing like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have some seen some things about the Alignable, but this is just a suggestion out of, you know, out of thin air, kind of like you were saying. But um, so I think for the close off of the podcast, I have uh, one final question that I ask for all my, my guests on the podcast. And it's just an interesting one, just uh, something interesting and fun. So it is, if you could have dinner with three people, who would they be and why? Oh, boy. Any three people. 
who they be and why. I would have to say They could be anyone, dead or alive, or neighbors, family. I know. This one is a tough question because there are a lot of people that I would love to pick their brain. I would probably select Elon Musk, an old teacher of mine. An eighth grade history teacher. His name was Mr. Facey. Uh, and I would choose for the third. I think it would be. I'm trying. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of who the third, uh, who the third one would be, and that would would my great grandmother, who passed away when I was nine, and uh, each of them brings an interest. an interesting perspective to the table. Not one of them will agree on everything. And I would bring Mr. Facey because he was ambassador in Cuba during the Bay Pigs. And he was he always had interesting stories and I about life from him. Elon Musk, because he is one some of the decisions that he's made at Tesla and Twitter and some of the things that whether it was his belief on birth rates or it was his you know some of the things he's trying at Twitter and people seem to be saying can you sense what he's doing or faster he's extremely analytical data in the most literal way not entirely devoid of he's able to separate the something that sounds really awful isn't necessary, you know, or wrong isn't necessarily that because and I would love to have a discussion with him on some of those some of those points that he makes and really pick his brain because there's a lot of depth there that People don't give, the people don't give him credit for it. and it's a shame that people miss it no he's not a god no he's not perfect but 
there is a lot of depth behind what he says that often gets trivialized or skipped over. And I would choose my great-grandmother. She passed away when I was eight years old. I had a good relationship with her and her husband, my great-grandfather, who I unfortunately was unable to meet, he had lupus. And he was in and out of the hospital for most of his life. And they owned a grocery store. And she, as, as a result, every time he was for a kidney replacement or it was for, uh, sorry, sorry, a kidney transplant or it was for, uh, that, you know, it was some other organ was failing with him. Somebody at a time when women weren't really running businesses, she was, she upheld traditional family values and ran the, ran the store in my great-grandfather's absence at a time where women just didn't do that. And so she was quite a strong individual. And I can only, you know, I can only having the three of them together with me at the same table, having a conversation would be ordinarily fascinating. You know, if, if ever, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you all agree, you're not learning anything. You're in an echo chamber. An opposing point of view, or, or it doesn't even have to be opposing, an alternative, an alternative perspective brings so much more opportunity to learn. And either you teach someone else or you learn something. But that is what exposes you to the diversity can't imagine a more important thing to discuss if I had to people one time for dinner than ideas. Yes, certainly. I, that's right. I think uh, the knowledge is for me, I like, I really treasure the information, the knowledge, but I, I love your, I love your three people that you've chosen. Elon Musk is somebody that I do idolize. I idolize him a lot. I don't know how much or why it started or why like this started, but um, I think you're right. His ideas are the ones that I'm like, Oh, he has a different perspective or he has a very, some way of wording it that I would never have thought of. Like he's somebody that I really like, he has this passion to go to out of, to go out of space and some passion to build the rockets. And he has these passions and, and the cars, you know, he has these like really big passions and he is somebody that I'm, I actually also like, I, that would be one person that I would have chosen as well. So like, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, thank you so much for sharing. I think I, 
I learned a lot actually I learned a lot about myself as well just from having this conversation and I'm pretty sure my audience would be very fascinated throughout this and you know we would love to hear from you again maybe sometime in the future and thank you so much for joining my podcast Jay and uh, we will see you next time sounds good I would just say uh, if you are if you are under investigative services or you're interested in finding about uh, finding out more or preparing in the in the event god forbid child protective services shows up at your door uh our website is cpsprotect.com my phone at 844-633-KIDS that's toll free at 844-633-KIDS and we can also be reached by email at contact at cpsprotect.com Thank you for having me on. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Jay.